If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. We are in the midst of a sermon series on worship. And this week we are discussing the question, why do we begin all of our worship services with a call to worship? Every week we have that scripture up on the screen and we read a passage of scripture. Why do we begin our worship services with a call to worship? I suppose the short answer is that it is the biblical pattern, which is why we always read it from the scripture each week. And the church has been uh, beginning worship in that manner for uh, millennia now. But we don't want to just continue to do things because that's the way it's always been done in the past. And just because it's the biblical pattern, that sort of begs the question, doesn't it? Why would that be the biblical pattern for worship? Why would we begin with a call to worship from God's word? And here's the reason why. It's because the call to worship teaches us a valuable rule for all of life. And that rule is this. God speaks and we respond. God speaks... And we respond. That's a valuable lesson for the pattern of all of life. I mean, you understand that we don't gather here together because we're smarter than everybody else. And we figured out something the world has just missed because they aren't as smart as we are. We gather because God calls us to gather. You see, God speaks through his world, through the things that we see, and through his word. So all we do is a response to God's revelation of who he is. And all of life for followers of Jesus is a response to God's initiative and God's invitation. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. It's the pattern for all of life. And it has been my prayer this week that you would hear God speak to you from Psalm 95. For my fans of Latin, you should know that this psalm is often called the Venite because it begins with that command to come. And it has been used by the church for over 2,000 years for, to call God's people to gather for worship. So I want you to hear now God's word to you this morning from Psalm 95. Hear now God's word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry ground. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never 
enter my rest. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do call us into your presence and you give us the great privilege of worshiping you. I pray that you would use Psalm 95 now to show us the kind of worship you desire. Indeed, the kind of worship you deserve. And I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, helping us to see where we fall short in worshiping you and how we can worship you better because you are worthy of all worship and honor and praise. And Father, I pray that you'd be willing to do this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In Psalm 95, God calls us to bring all we are to worship him. That's the first point today. God calls us to bring all we are to worship him. We see this in Psalm 95, right? He calls us to bring our hearts to worship him because worship is emotional. God wants our emotions. Look in verse 1. We're commanded, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2 says, we come before him with thanksgiving. We extol him. If you're getting ready for a standardized test and you're working on your vocabulary, extol's a good one, okay? If you don't know that one, here's some free test prep for you, right? Uh, extol means to praise enthusiastically. If you extol the virtues of someone, you go on and on about how great they are. And so to extol God with music and song is what we've been doing this morning. We've been talking about how great he is in our worship and in our music. Now the point is this though, God wants our emotions. He wants us to sing for joy. He wants us to shout aloud. He wants us to praise him with enthusiasm. I wonder, when's the last time you shouted aloud to the Lord? We often shout aloud if we, our, our, our team gets a break and something good happens for them. We'll shout aloud about that. If we go to a concert, and we hear one of our favorite uh, musicians or favorite artists do something, we will shout aloud. Certainly, the Lord our God is worthy and entitled to such praise. Now, I should mention there are other emotions described in the psalm, such as tears in Psalm 56 and verse 8, and there are other laments in the psalms where we are commanded to bring our grief to bring our longing, to bring our waiting, to bring our hurts before the Lord. But the point here is that we come before God with our emotions. Right? We don't come to God preoccupied with lesser things. We don't come to him apathetic about his majesty. We don't come before him unmoved by his greatness. God calls us to bring our hearts to him because worship that God desires is emotional. God wants our emotions. 
But not only that, not only does God want our hearts because worship is emotional, but God wants our heads because worship is intellectual. God wants our minds. Do you notice in the text that we're not just commanded to come before him with joyful songs? We're not just commanded to shout aloud for no reason or to praise with enthusiasm uh, just because we're told to, right? We're told to think about why should be, we should be joyful. Do you see that? We looked at verse 1 and 2 where he says to come with joy and to extol them. And then verse 3 says why? Because for the Lord is a great God. Because he is the king above all kings. Because the depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountains belong to him and the sea is his because he made it, because he formed the dry land, right? You see it again in verse 6 after we're told to come and bow down and to worship him and then we're given the reason again. Verse 7, why? Because he is our God, for he is a great God. He, he's our shepherd. We're his people. We belong to him. It's that God who is so great that we belong to and thinking about that with our mind minds grasping that intellectually should stir our hearts and move us to a worship that is emotional. But notice, he even says today, if you hear his voice, you see, we listen to and consider God's word with our minds. You know, worship is certainly more than just using our minds, but it's not less than that. The scripture gives us reasons for why God calls us to do what he calls us to do. And so we're to bring our heads because worship is intellectual. We're to bring our hearts because worship is emotional. We're also to bring our hands because worship is volitional, right? We make a choice to bend the knee to God's lordship. You see that in verse 6 where he says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, Now, don't think that this is only something physical, all right? I think it would be good to do that physically. If you've never prayed while kneeling uh, or while lying face down the floor, I encourage you to do that because sometimes when we physically do something, our hearts and our minds will follow what our body is physically doing. And so that's an appropriate posture for worship to kneel and to bow But keep in mind, this is not just something physical. What God is saying here is that he wants our will surrendered to his will. Isn't that where he goes in the text? He's upset with these people. Why? Because they heard his voice, but they hardened their hearts, verse 8 says. Verse 10 says that they went astray. They went in a different direction from his word, that they didn't walk in his ways that he had prescribed. And he's not happy about that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But for now, notice that worship is not just a call for our hearts and our heads. What we do here is supposed to continue into how we live our lives outside of this one hour together on Sunday morning. It's supposed to, what happens in our hearts is it's supposed to change the way we live outside the walls of this building. This call to worship in Psalm 95 is a call to bring all we are to God in worship. Our head, our heart, our hands, our mind, our will, our emotions. It's what we're saying this morning. You know, we're giving it all to you. We're surrendered in all areas of life 
to our God. So that's the, the first thing to consider from Psalm 95. God calls us to bring all we are to worship him. But, but secondly, it may go without saying, but let's just be explicit. We must give all of this to God or we are not worshiping in the way that he desires. There have been a lot of books published about what worship should look like. And we all have our list about what we think worship should be. And then I compare my list to your list. And we've had so-called worship wars. But at a minimum, it is true that, that we have to give all that we are to God or we're not worshiping as he desires. Think about that with me. If we only bring our emotions, if we just come before him with joy and shouting aloud... But that joy, that extolling him is not grounded in truth. I think the theological term for that, let me, I've got it written down here, happy, clappy, sappy sentimentality. Okay, I made that up, right, from based on things I've heard other people say. But that's true, right? If it's not based on something, if there's no foundation for our joy, uh, then, then it, is, it doesn't amount to much. However, if we only bring our mind to God, but the truth of who he is and what he has done does not move our emotions, the theological term for that would be dead orthodoxy, right? We believe the right things, but it doesn't seem to be catching our hearts on fire or making a difference in us. It doesn't really seem to move us. It doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to be more important. And Jesus talked about folks who do this in Matthew chapter 15, down around verse 8. He's quoting Isaiah 29, and Jesus says, These people worship me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. And then he goes on. You know what he says? He says, they worship me in vain. In other words, that's not real worship. They really don't worship me at all. Now, for most of us, if we could do both of those things, if we could bring our minds and our hearts before God and worship, if we could find a church, I hear people tell me this all the time, if we could find a church that was, that was really worshipful and really moved my heart and my emotions and was really grounded in truth and appealed to my head. Boy, if we could have that as a church, people would love, we would be satisfied with those two things. But I want you to know, according to Psalm 95, even that falls short of what God requires. You see, if we believe the truth in our mind and we celebrate with our emotions, but there is no bending of the knee to God... If it doesn't really change how we actually live our lives outside of this place, you know what that's called? Hypocrisy. That I say I believe something with my mouth, that I even get emotional and, and, and happy about it, but it has no transforming power in my life. I don't actually bend the knee to God. I don't actually walk in his ways. I don't actually do the things that he calls me to do all those things have to be present or we're not worshiping God as he desires. When you read the Old Testament prophets, they're continually saying that yes, you're doing all the stuff that God told you to do. But when you leave here and you act a totally different way, then I don't want he says I'm sick of your feasts. Read Isaiah 1. 
tired of your sacrifices. Don't bring them to me anymore, even though God had commanded them to do that. Because the way that they lived their lives was so inconsistent with the way God had called them to live in his word. And he said, when you do that and then you come and worship me, it's in vain. It's for nothing. It's not really, you're worshiping something besides me. I wonder, which comes more naturally for you? And which is more difficult for you? For some of us, it is easy to get emotional. It is easy for us to uh, really worship in a way that we're moved in our emotions and in our hearts. But we don't really want to read a, a book. We don't really want to study. If we want to ground that in some kind of truth, ah, it's hard for us to go there, right? For others of us, we love to read books. We love to do a study. Give me another chapter to read about God. But many times those truths don't, don't move us in our hearts. We don't really appreciate what we know a lot of stuff, but we don't really appreciate what God has done. We all have a certain bent. I would encourage you to be aware of yours. And whether your heart is easier to engage or your head is easier to engage, I think we all struggle with wanting to bend the knee to God, right? We all have trouble saying, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. We all struggle with wanting to build our kingdom instead of saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We all struggle in that area. So, so be on to yourself. Think about, hey, what's easier for me? What's more difficult for me? And then ask God to help you in that area so that we might worship him in a way that he desires, indeed a way that he commands. Well, I want to spend the balance of our time, what we have left, talking about this question. Maybe God has worked in your heart. You've been moved that, hey, I struggle in this area. I'm, I'm more bent in this area. Uh, you know, it's easier for me to, to meet what God requires in this area. But, you know, Psalm 95 is calling me to do something that's out of my comfort zone that I'm not really good at. I'm not really sure I can bring God the worship he desires. And if that's where you are good because you can't bring God the worship that he desires, the only person who ever brought perfect worship before the Father was the Son, Jesus the Son, who appropriately grounded his emotion in truth. When he was anger, it wasn't sin. It was a righteous anger. When he was happy, he rejoiced in the Lord. And he also walked God's ways perfectly, right? So we're going to struggle. But I think it's important to ask, how can I improve? How can I get better? How can my worship become more like what God wants it to be? And, and I love the way Psalm 95 does motivate us and enable us to worship in the way God calls us to do. So ask God where you struggle. Confess how you struggle as sin. And then let's look at the text and see what it is that Psalm 95 gives us to help us worship God in this way. Let me give you just three quickly. First... Ask God to show you his greatness as the creator and the king. You see that in verse three, verses 3 through 5. We talked about he calls for this emotional worship, but then he grounds it in who he is, that he's a great God, that he's the king above all gods, that he made everything, that it all belongs to him. You see, when we understand who God is, then we are moved in our hearts to worship him. So ask God to show you his greatness. 
as a creator and a king. You do understand that's one of the reasons why we start with a call to worship every week, right? We have a call to worship to remind us who it is that calls us to worship. If you listen to the call to worship, it often extols, praises enthusiastically, the attributes of God. And then we, all have a, we always have a prayer where we, where we adore God. We have a, a prayer of adoration, adoring him for who he is. Because when we begin to really see who it is that calls us to worship, the natural response is to give all that we have and all that we are, our head, our heart, our hands, our mind, our will, and our emotions. You probably do this all the time, whether you're aware of it or not. Think about it with me. If you own one of these things, and if you're listening uh, on our podcast, I'm holding up my cell phone now before the congregation. And if you have one of these devices, you probably do this all the time. Think about it. You get a call on this apparatus, right? The call comes into you. And, you know, these devices will tell you who it is that's calling. I don't know if yours does that, but mine does that. And it'll tell you who's calling. And if it's someone not in your context, you don't know who they are, most people say, I don't know who that is, so I'm not taking this call. They can leave me a voicemail. I may call them. I may, I may call them back. I may not. But if I don't know who this is, I'm not taking this call. And for some of us, the phone who identifies who it is that's calling And we still don't take the call. We say, I just can't handle that person right now. (laughs) I'm not at a place that I can take their call at this point. But there are some people that when they call and their contact information pops up on here, we say to whoever we're with, I got to take this call. I'm taking this one. We all have those people, don't we? Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a coworker. My wife very seldom calls me because she doesn't like to talk on the phone. She would rather just text. If it's just information, if she calls me, I need to take this call because that is rare. She doesn't do that a lot. If one of my girls call me, I'm taking that call because they rarely call me. Every message I leave for them because they don't answer the phone, every message I leave starts like this. Why do we even have these phones if nobody's ever going to answer them? And, of course, they say, if they even listen to the voicemail, just text me, right? If my wife, if my girls, we all have people that if they call and it pops up, that's who it is. We're going to take this call. That's all a call to worship is, right? Think of our call to worship as caller ID. And one of the reasons we have that is so that you hear who it is that is calling you and you're reminded of who God is. And we say to the rest of the world, I got to take this call. I'm going to stop the other things. I'm going to excuse myself from the other things that are going on in the world. And I'm taking this call because the one who calls is so important. Because what what they mean to me is so important that I'm taking this call. We all know how to do this. And the key is to ask God to show you his greatness as your creator and as your king, and that enables us to hear and to take his call. Second thing I would encourage you to do, ask God to show you his care for you personally. Ask him to show you his care for you personally. Do you hear how the psalm changes 
and its tone. First, there's this call to worship, and then three through five, it's talking about he is the great God. He's the great king above all kings. And that should be enough to move us. But a lot of times we feel like God is so big and so he's out there. Lee talked about it at the beginning of the worship service. So we think God is so concerned with great, you know, he doesn't really have time for me. He's concerned with like stuff going on in the Middle East or something. And he doesn't really care for me personally. And we know that God created all things and that he's a great God, but we wonder if he's really involved in the affairs of our life. But look at how the tone changes. In verse 6, we're called to worship him. And then we're told in verse 7, why do we do that? Because he is our God. Not just a God out there. So he is our God. And we're his people. That God, just the great God that is the king above all gods, he takes care of us. Listen, God knows you intimately. He knows you physically. He knit you together in your mother's womb. There's nothing about your body that he doesn't know. There's nothing about your story that he doesn't know. All the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. Would I have written the story differently? Absolutely. But none of us is the author of our own stories. But he is. We worry, does he continue to care? Does he even care what's going on? Jesus tells us that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from God's will. And if he cares that much about a tiny bird, how much more does he care for you? Jesus tells us even the the very hairs on your head are numbered. God knows you and cares for you on, on, on that intricate of a level, that level of detail. And that's important to remember. Because for some of us, For whatever reason, maybe it's because of our family of origin. Maybe it's because we ways we've sinned or ways we've been sinned against. But it's easy for us to believe that God is out there somewhere, that he is a great God, that he is a great king. But what we're unsure of is whether he's really good. And what we worry about is whether he's really for me. Oh, we were reminded in the songs this morning. Did you hear it? That even what the enemy means for evil, he uses for our good and for his glory. That paraphrase of Romans 8, 28 that we sang about this morning. That nothing escapes. Yes, he's for you. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Yes, he knows what's going on. Yes, he's aware. Yes, he's for you. And he's using all those things for your good so that you will look more like Jesus. For many of us, we will give our heart to God and we will be emotional. We will give our mind to him. But our will, we're a little hesitant to give up our will. Because we're not really sure if God is good. We're not really sure if he is for us. So take some time to remember, to ask God to show you his care for you personally so that you begin to trust him and trust his will more than your will. So that you walk in his ways more than you walk in your 
ways. One last thing in this psalm that I want to show you that helps us to worship. And the way I I phrased it was this. Ask God to show you the consequences of hardening your heart. And what I mean by that is if God is leading you, if he has revealed something to you, ask him to show you the consequences of, of not walking in that way, of just using your heart and your head and not bending the knee to him. This psalm is so interesting because it's like, be joyful and God is good and he's great and man, you know, shout aloud and you should have thanksgiving and then you get to verse eight. (laughs) And if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts because he'll get mad with you and he won't let you enter his rest. And people are like, wow, that's mean of God to say that. This is, it was a great psalm. It just turned me. Some people say, I don't even think it's the same psalm. Somebody must have just put these together. Well, first of all, I don't know who would have put that with this psalm. That makes no sense to me. But God put it together. Because, and, and excuse me, grammar folks, for using a double negative, right? It's not gracious of God to not tell us the consequences of going our own way. And sort of say that grammatically, in a grammatically correct way. It is gracious of God to tell us what happens when we don't walk in his ways. Let's examine that together. You see, you might have heard this and said, well, he said, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massa in the desert. You think, well, I wasn't at Meribah. (laughs) I wasn't in Massa. I'm glad I'm not those folks, but boy, they're in trouble, aren't they? Do you know that's what the original audience probably said too? Psalm 95 was written 400 years after the events that God is referring to. And so those folks could say the same thing. They could say, you know, I wasn't at Meribah. I wasn't at Massa. I don't know what you're talking about, God. You're not angry at me. It's been 400 years since that happened. Now he does, I want to point out, say in verse 9, where your fathers tested me and tried me. Your translation may say where your ancestors did that. He's saying, look, those who came before you did this. And it's a warning, not only written to them, but to us, 1 Corinthians 10 would say, right? So listen to the flow of thought. God's talking about an event from Exodus 17 where their forefathers had been slaves in Egypt. And they saw God do some amazing things to turn the Nile River into blood. Blowing out the sun so it doesn't shine for three days. Separating the Red Sea and they walked through the Red Sea where God had parted. They saw some amazing things that God did to redeem them from their slavery. He brought them out. He established a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. He gave them special revelation. He gave them his ten commandments. He provided manna. He provided quail. But when they didn't have water, that's what happened at Massa and Meribah. There was no water after God had done all these other things for them. When they didn't have water, you know what they did? They doubted God's goodness after all they'd seen. They didn't believe that he would do what he said he was going to do. And so they did not enter the rest of the promised land. They wandered around the desert, carrying all that they owned that they had brought from Egypt on their backs, carrying their life on their backs, and they did not enter God's rest. How about us? I would argue this doesn't apply to us less, that it applies to us more. 
And I would do that on the authority of Hebrews 3 and 4 because that's the way the writer of Hebrews applies this text. You see, we've been redeemed by God. We've been redeemed from the slavery of our sin. God has made, we've seen not only God's faithfulness in the old covenant, but his faithfulness in the new covenant, being willing to give his son. Seeing the new covenant that we celebrate uh, every time we come to the Lord's table. That, that we have that covenant, that he shed his blood to establish a new covenant, that he's taken the punishment for our sin, for those ways that we fall short even in worship, so that we can be the people of God. He's given us special... They had the Ten Commandments. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. He provided manna and quail. He has provided us with an abundance. We live in a land of plenty. Most of our problems are very first world problems. And as soon as something doesn't go our way, we doubt God's goodness after all we've seen him do. And we wander in the desert carrying the burden of all of our life on our backs, and we do not enter into God's rest. But I've got good news for you this morning. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, God came in the flesh and carried our burdens and wandered in the wilderness being tempted by the evil one and was completely successful. Yes, as an example to us, but also as our substitute in our place, God the Son accomplished this so that we can lay our burdens down, so that we can give all that we have and all that we are to him and enter into his rest the best commentary on the end of psalm 95 here is hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 and it quotes this end of the psalm that people don't like that sounds kind of mean to us and the writer of hebrews makes the argument that i'm making he says in chapter 3 see to it that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart don't go there remember the faithfulness of what he has done and in chapter 4, he says, we've had the gospel preached to us. Now combine it with faith, walking in God's ways. And this in chapter 4, down around verse 9, 10, and 11, that the writer of Hebrews assures us that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 this week. But let me just close by saying this. I believe this is something we really need here in this place. Because many of us have been redeemed, but we live in the desert. We don't give everything, all that we have, all that we are over to God. And the consequence is that we do not enter into his rest. And I can see it in the lives that we live, in the anxiety that I feel, that I know that you feel in the burdens that we carry, in the weariness that we talk about. We bring our minds, we bring our hearts to God, but there seems to be no transforming power in our life. There's no transformation in the way that we live because we don't bend the knee to God as a great God or as a great king, as our God.
And we don't quite give and we don't quite surrender all. Because we're not sure that we quite trust him despite his faithfulness in the past. And as a result, we carry our life on our back and we get tired and the burden is heavy. I call you now from Psalm 95, from Hebrews chapter 3, for I call you receive the rest that comes from giving all that we are and all that we have to God. And our weekly call to worship is a call to do just that, to give everything that we have to God, to trust him and to enter into that rest that only he can give. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Oh, Father, left to our own devices, we would be pleased with worship that moves our emotions and with truth that grows our minds. But few of us want to bow the knee to you. Few of us want to give up our will for your will. Oh, God, forgive us. Be at work in our hearts. Help us to trust you not only as the great God, not only as the great king, not only as the creator of all things, but as our God, the one who loved us so much that he was willing to give his son so that we might be members of the family. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.